0: If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter six. If you were with us last week, you remember that Paul is continuing to describe what the life of the church should look like. In chapter five, he's he's challenging the church to pursue purity and holiness together. He's encouraging the church even to make proper judgments about sin that might be taking place within the church. And now in chapter six, Paul's continuing to remind us of who we are and how that should affect the way that we live life together, particularly when we face conflict or when disputes arise within the church. So if you have your Bibles, look at me again here with chapter six. We'll be reading the first eight verses and the words will be on the screen above me as well. 1 Corinthians chapter six, beginning in verse one. When one of you has grievance against another, Does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. I don't know about you, but, but sometimes when I think about the New Testament church, I, uh, I kind of have this romanticized idea in my mind of what it must have been like. You know, the, the church is growing, the gospel's going forth, the Holy Spirit is doing these incredible things. You, you have that passage in Acts chapter 2 where all the members of the church are selling all their possessions and sharing everything in need so that, so, so that everybody has no lack of anything. And sometimes I think, man, it, it would be great to be like the New Testament church, right? But if you're also like me, and you've been with us in our series so far through 1 Corinthians, you may have begun to reconsider that notion, right? As we looked at this church, we've seen division and tension and immorality, pride. Even last week, we talked about we, there, there are men who are sleeping with their, with their father's wives. Now we come to chapter 6, and we have church members who are suing one another. And so, while we often, or at least I do, I like to romanticize the idea of being a New Testament church, um, the reality is the New Testament church was a mess. And I, I was thinking about that this week, and I was thinking, you know what, that, that actually makes sense. Like the, the church had just been formed. The, the gospel was just now beginning to be understood by the church. The, the word of God, which shows us how to live together, was still being written that's what 1 Corinthians 6 is, the word of God still being written to the church. So it was a messy time, but it was an exciting time because the gospel was beginning to be understood by the church. And this work is still continuing in our church even today. And, and I was thinking about this week, i just, I've been made freshly grateful for God's word, which fixes our eyes on Christ, which shows us how we are to live together as a church family. And this morning's passage is, as Paul continues to get into the the nitty-gritty of our lives together, he he turns our attention to moments in community life where where disputes and arguments arise. And my prayer has been that God's word is going to have its transforming work in our lives again this morning and this coming week. Here's the main idea of our message this morning. The church has been given everything it needs to deal with conflict and maintain unity. The church has been, given, has been given everything it needs to deal with conflict and maintain unity. And we're gonna look at three points this morning. First, we're gonna look at the crisis in Corinth. We're gonna look at our identity as saints. And we're gonna look at a heart of humility. So first, the crisis in Corinth. In verse one in our text this morning, it describes one of the problems that is being faced by the church in Corinth. And verse 1 says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Now in the following verses, Paul's going to get into all this in more detail, but basically what Paul is talking about is it had become regular practice in the church to publicly sue one another over minor grievances. And the text doesn't say exactly what these Christians were, were suing one another over, so it's likely there were there were lots of different reasons, but, but it seems that likely some of it had to do with, with seeking financial compensation for wrong that was done. And before I go on here, I, I just want to say that as far as, as I'm aware, um, there's not a whole lot of suing one another happening here at our church. Um, some of us may have been involved in lawsuits outside of the church, and, and just to be clear, Paul's not saying that all lawsuits are wrong. We'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, but official public lawsuits, members suing one another, um, has not been a major concern of us as pastors here at this church, which we're grateful for. However, don't, don't disengage too quickly from the text this morning. Because Paul's response to the church in Corinth has a lot of application for us as a church today. There's a lot that we need to hear as we think through our own relationships here in this church family. Now to understand the situation in Corinth better, we need to know a little bit about the court systems of that day. It was was wild. It was out of control. Lawsuits were a very public thing in the city of that day and they're also a very, a very public thing. In fact, similar to that day, there would, be, there would be juries that would be made up of people within the city who, who would decide these cases. And in big cases, there might have been juries made up of thousands of people in the city, thousands of people in that say would be deciding these cases. And so it was likely that many people in this church here in Corinth would have been involved and decide on multiple lawsuits about others in the city, and potentially even many even within their own church. And this was all very public. It was all very showy. it, It had actually become a form of entertainment for the city of Corinth. And also, suing someone that day was a way for you to kind of bump up your social status in the city. Like, to defeat somebody in a public lawsuit would have made you stand out as impressive to others so it had become this, this common practice to kind of air everyone's dirty laundry out before the community and to defraud each other and to, and to, and to get a leg up on others in the community to, to up your social status. And, and the public nature of all of this made it so that everybody knew all the wrong that everyone else was doing in the city. This is, this is not a perfect illustration of how it was back in Corinth, but if you've ever seen one of those reality TV shows like, like Judge Judy, where you have thousands of people watching as these, as these people argue back and forth about this broken flat screen TV that was broken at a Super Bowl party and they're screaming at each other and they're, they're manning as much money from each other as they can. And, and, and we all are like looking on being entertained by this, right? Well, in the church of Corinth, Christians were doing this towards each other as church members. Can you imagine if one day you turn on the TV, you, you turn into Judge Judy, and it's me, and it we'll say Sheila Nottage, and, and, and we're fighting back and forth about this broken TV screen, trying to get as much money from each other, fighting, bickering over it. How embarrassing that would be if you saw us on Judge Judy. And just to be clear, I don't even own a TV. So if this situation played out, it's not me bringing the lawsuit, just to be clear. Um, but, but stuff like this was actually happening in the church in Corinth. And Paul's saying, This cannot be. This is embarrassing. You are members of the same church, you are family. He says in verses six through eight brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now before I continue this morning, I want want to clarify something. Paul is not saying that it's always wrong to bring a lawsuit or to get authorities involved. Potentially even against another person in a church. Romans 13 speaks of governments and authorities as blessings to us. Who serve to punish wrongdoing and seek justice when time is needed. So there are instances, like examples of of certain times of types of abuse, or crimes of violence, or significant wrongdoing, where it may be absolutely necessary to get authorities involved. And there have been times where churches have actually made very poor decisions in seeking to handle in-house cases where authorities should have been brought in. This has Result in, in further damage for those involved. So Paul, Paul's not making a, a blanket statement here that as Christians involving courts and outside authorities is always wrong. His concern is that the church has adopted this culture where when you are wronged by somebody, there is a quickness to demand that that person be punished for what they have done and and a willingness to broadcast this wrongdoing before those outside of the church. And they're doing this over small things that should have been handled in the church family. And, And so Paul's concern is two things. First, his concern is that this is resulting in further damage to the unity of the church. But then second... His concern is that, is that this is hindering the witness of the gospel before the world. Because the world is looking on as the church deals with conflict and they're seeing no difference between how the church deals with conflict and how the world deals with conflict. R.C. Sproul says it this way. He says, Paul's concern here, of course, is with the public witness of the church. The apostle does not want believers to bring their relatively insignificant, easily solved disagreements before unbelievers. That is because if believers cannot settle minor matters among themselves, that encourages the world to question the ability of the gospel to settle larger issues such as man's reconciliation to God. His point is the way that we settle disputes with one another The way that we deal with conflict in our own church family, it displays to the world, either positively or negatively, the ability of the gospel to transform our relationships. Now there's lots of applications for us here. The first big one is don't sue one another. (laughs) But there's more to it than that, right? Our temptation... Might not be to sue one another. We, we might not ever be bringing one another before Judge Judy, right? But instead, maybe when there are disputes, our temptation is to gossip about that person. Our tendency is to ignore that person, to isolate that person, to cut them out of our lives. Maybe our tendency is to leave the church. Like we, we, we won't sue somebody. Maybe we won't even gossip about them. But we will leave the church rather than doing the hard work of pursuing reconciliation with a brother or sister in Christ. But God has called us and He has equipped us to be a church that pursues a better path than that. As we continue on in our passage, Paul's going to help us in this by reminding us of who we are as a church family. And this leads to our second point our identity as saints. So returning now to our text, I want to look again here at the first three verses. And church, listen to the things that Paul says about us as a church. Verse 1 through 3 again. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And, And then this. Do you not know that as saints you will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Now, those are some interesting statements that Paul is making there, right? He's talking about saints one day judging the world, even judging angels. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what Paul means by these things, but first I want to start off by talking about what Paul means when he calls us saints. When Paul talks about saints in these verses, He's not talking about just the most godly of believers. He's not talking about just the most righteous out there. right? He's not talking about the Apostle Peter or Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. He's talking about just regular common Christians. He's talking about us. We are the saints. And what does it mean to be a saint, church? It means that we have cho- been chosen by God to be a holy people. I mean, that we have been set apart from this world. To live as Christ has called us to. To walk in righteousness. To accomplish God's purposes for his people on this earth. Ephesians 1.4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy. Which is the same word in the Greek as the word saints. We have been chosen to be saints, to be holy, and to be blameless before him. And here's, a, I think, a helpful thought for us as we think through this idea of being saints. When you are saved, you are called by God to walk differently. But here's the thing. Every time that Paul talks about saints, every time that Paul talks about saints in the New Testament, he always talks about us as a people. When Paul says that we are set apart, he does not mean that you are set apart. He means that we are set apart collectively as God's people. We, the church, together are called to be holy and blameless and to stand out as God's people. God does not want Christians who are individually walking out their faith. That category does not make sense to the New Testament. What God wants is a community community who relates to each other in such a way that shows that we are the people of God, that we are saints, that we are called, set apart. And God has called us to this, and church, God has equipped us in that. God has given us his word, which reminds us how we are to live with one another. God has given us the heart and the mind of Christ that we might have ambition to love one another and treat one another with respect and love and wisdom. He's given us his spirit, which empowers us for these things. He's given us Christ, which demonstrates to us humility and meekness. And, church, he's given us each other. He has given us a community so we can help one another, challenge, encourage one another by helping us to walk in obedience so that we might protect the public witness of the church. And that's really what Paul is getting at here in chapter 6. He's saying that the church is called and empowered by God to be unified as a church when conflict arises. And then Paul says this. He says, as saints, as the people of God, we are going to judge the world. And we're even going to judge angels. Now, I'm going to be honest. I don't know exactly what Paul means by that which is kind of funny because he says, do you not know that saints will judge the world? It's this, it's this rhetorical question that he expects the church in Corinth to know the answer to. So if you, if you were driving to church this morning you were unaware that one day you were going to judge angels, now you know. And there's, but, I, but I was reading commentaries this week and it just isn't exactly clear what Paul means when he says this. Some suggest that, that Paul is talking about how as believers we are we're going to one day participate in that final day of judgment where God judges Satan and fallen angels. Others suggest that this idea is more of, of rulership and authority in God's kingdom. The, the word judgment can also mean rule or to have responsibility over something. And so it's, so it's possible that Paul has all of these things in mind when he says that we are going to be judges of the world and even of angels one day. But whatever exactly he means, what we do know is that one day we are going to rule with Christ over a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to have oversight and authority. We're going to make decisions, right? Heaven's not just going to be sitting on clouds playing harps, right? That sounds horrible. It's going to be ownership with Christ over a new heaven and a new earth of a glorified heaven and earth where we will make judgments, we will act in wisdom, we will rule with Christ over what God has given us. That's what God has planned for us as his church. And Paul's saying you should know this. This is who you are destined to as saints. You are equipped for this. Remember who you are, church. Remember what God has in store for you. And the whole point of this is Paul is saying, if this is who we are called to as saints... Why are we not living like that now? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Imagine with me that you are a referee in the NFL. And you're a particularly good referee. And so, so you, as far as, sports go, like that's a pretty prestigious position right but now imagine that you're so good that you have been asked to referee in the Super Bowl game okay that's a big responsibility but you're you're equipped for it you're called to it you've trained for it and now imagine it's a week before the Super Bowl and your kids are having a birthday party and they want to play a game of pickup football in the backyard and so you're the you're the Super Bowl referee so they ask you to ref this game Now, imagine how ridiculous it would be if you were to say, "Mm, I don't know, that's a big responsibility, refereeing that backyard football game. I'm not sure I can handle that. And so instead of refereeing this game, you call up a couple of friends and you say, can you come over and ref my kid's backyard football game for me? Like, what an embarrassing phone call that would be to make as a Super Bowl NFL referee, right? That's kind of what Paul is saying here to the church. He's saying, we're gonna rule with Christ. We are co-heirs, co-rulers with Christ. One day we're gonna judge the world. We're gonna judge angels. And so we should be able to deal with conflict within our own church family. If wrong has been done, if, if, if gossip has taken place, if even if financial restitution needs to take place, we don't need to involve those outside the church. We should not sue one another over matters like this. We should not publicize our grievances before the world. We should not shame one another on Facebook. We need to be careful how we speak of one another, particularly before unbelievers, because this harms the witness of the church. And it rejects our responsibility to solve disputes and conflicts within the church family. When we understand our identity as God's people, it reveals the absurdity of acting this way. Paul says in verse 5, Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute among brothers? And of course, this this is another rhetorical question, right? He's saying, as saints, we are equipped for this. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have the Word which guides us, and we have each other. When conflict arises, Look to the church for help. It is a wonderful thing that God has called us to operate this way together. If there's someone in this church who you feel has wronged you, either spoken poorly about you or cheated you in some way, be resolved to follow a path that honors Christ and protects the witness of the church. If you need help, look to the church for that help. Whether that means going to a pastor, whether that means going to a fellowship group leader, whether that means just finding another trusted friend in the church, work through these issues as brothers and sisters in Christ. Be willing to be helped, be willing to be corrected. And the goal in all this is not to get even with one another, the goal is not to make sure that your reputation is upheld. The goal is unity as a church and the preservation of the witness. Of the church. And at times, that may mean being willing to even be wronged and to suffer wrong. This leads to our third and final point, which is a heart of humility. In verse 7, Paul says what I think may be one of the most challenging verses in all of the Bible. And again, he's he's speaking to a culture and to a church that that loves to run to the courts when they are wronged. And and they're they're willing to sacrifice the unity of the church in order to defend their rights and to get revenge. And it seems that the culture is even proud of this, right? To defeat your brother and sister in court was something to be celebrated. Paul says you cannot do this. In fact, he says to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. And then he says this, which I think is one of the most challenging things the Bible says. He says, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? Church, I don't know that there's anything that is more contrary to the natural human heart than that statement, right? Think about what Paul's saying here. He's saying, when you are wronged, as a Christian, the number one priority cannot be to make sure that you are repaid for that wrong. Which is where our hearts naturally go, right? It it is just a universal human tendency to want revenge when we are wronged, to demand justice, to accept nothing less than that there be restitution for that wrong that was done. And church, it's, it's not that it's wrong to feel a desire for that. When we are wronged, if we we are gossiped about, if we are treated unfairly, if somebody's sin causes us pain, it's not wrong to long for justice. Paul's not saying that it's wrong to pursue reconciliation and and to even plead that that wrong be made right. What Paul is saying, though, is that that cannot be our highest priority as a church. If If you are disrespected by your spouse, the the natural inclination of your heart is not to let that go, right? Your response is to respond in anger or to withdraw from them or to give them a cold shoulder for the rest of the day. And and so you, you want to withhold kindness from them until they own up to what they do in a way which satisfies you, right? If you're gossiped about, your first thought, your first inclination is not to let love cover a multitude of sins, is it? No, it's, it's to defend yourself. It's to throw harsh words back at that person. It's to put that person in their place. Let's, let's say a, a friend invites a bunch of your other friends over and you are left out. That's hard, right, that hurts. What's your heart wanna do in that moment? Let's say that the next day you see them in church in that next moment. What do you wanna do? Do you want to be warm towards that person? Do you want to show affection towards that person? No. You want to walk to the other side of the room. You want to dwell on the hurt that they caused you. You want to think maybe, maybe next time I'm going to leave them out. I want to make sure that they are excluded because of what they've done to me. Like Our hearts are fragile. right? Our hearts are so easily hurt. We are so quick to say I am done with this relationship because of the hurt that I'm feeling. You're so quick to harbor bitterness, to return hurtful words. But Paul says that is the way of the world. And we must be different, church. Unity in the church, the corporate witness of the church, it's more important than your need for personal justice. We're called to handle disputes and conflict and hurt differently. Even if that means we are willing to be wronged. Even if that means that we must must abandon the fight to make sure that person is put in their place. But church, how can we do this? Why should we do this? What reason do we have for letting go of our personal rights? The reason, church, is that that is what Christ has done for you. That's the foolishness of the gospel. That's the foolishness of the cross that Paul's been talking about so far. The the, the foolishness of the cross, which, which defies the wisdom of the world, which goes in conflict to the natural tendencies of our heart, is this. It's that Jesus was willing to be wronged for your sake. Nothing that Paul is talking about in this chapter makes even the smallest amount of sense if we don't understand what Christ has done for us. He gave up his throne. He gave up his glory. He was willing to be mocked and mistreated and misunderstood, lied about, stolen from. He was even willing to die on a cross for us. And we were the ones who defrauded him. We were the ones who wronged him. It was yet while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. And church, here is the true glory of the gospel. It's that Jesus does not demand that we repay him. Instead, he invites us to receive his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness and life and joy with him for eternity, which nobody can take away from us. That's the gospel, church. And so, church, with Christ as our example in this, with the spirit that empowers us, with his church and the unity that we treasure together, we can be willing to be wronged, church. And, church, we can do this without the hope or or without, without abandoning the hope for justice. I think this is really important because we might ask in all of this, Doesn't this this all just give opportunity for people to take advantage of one another? Doesn't this result in a church where justice does not happen? And we're actually going to talk about this more next week. But, But church, God knows the wrong that is done. God is a God of justice. And the wrong that has been done to you, it will be paid for. The wrong that you have done will be paid for. But when wrong is done to you, it will be paid for, church. And if that wrong is done to you by someone who is a believer in Christ, then that wrong has already been paid for on the cross. Their sins against you were nailed to the cross with Christ, and they have been paid. Church, if wrong is done to you by someone who is not a believer in Christ, and they never choose to repent of sin and follow Christ, And their wrong will be paid for on that final day of judgment. And pray that it would not be so. But it will be paid for. God's a God of justice. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We can trust God for justice in our lives. And then we can have mercy on others who wrong us. We, We do not always have to demand repayment for wrong done to us. In fact, often the demand for that in the way that we demand it often damages the witness of the church and hinders the witness of the gospel because while you may have won your argument, you may have gotten revenge on that person, you may have put that person in their place, but in doing so, have you showed yourself to be someone who is unaffected by the gospel? Have you shown yourself to be someone, someone who is unwilling to count others as more significant than yourself? Have you shown yourself unwilling to endure wrong like Christ has endured wrong? Maybe you show yourself to be one who who would rather damage the unity of the church and the witness of the gospel in order to secure victory in someone against an argument. And if this is who we are, Paul says, church, you have already been defeated. How can we do this, church? How can we enjoy the mercy and the grace of God while withholding mercy from those in our own family? How can we talk about the peace that God has brought to us if we can't live at peace with one another? How can we talk to the world about the great love that God has for us if we cannot demonstrate to the world love that we have for one another? And oh, how we need help in this church. But church, we have that help. We have the example of Christ. It helps us to walk as he is walked. We can look to Christ and say, Christ, I want to live like you. I want to love like you. I want to be willing to be wronged like you have been wronged. And we have a spirit, church. We really are empowered to walk differently than this world. And to display how satisfying Christ is and how gracious he has been to us. And church, we have each other. This fellowship is so precious to us. It is worth fighting for. It is such a powerful testimony to the beauty and the power of the gospel. We have such wonderful purpose in this church. Let's not walk in defeat this week. Let us fix our eyes on Christ. Let us walk in the victory of the gospel that he has secured for us and let us live as he has called us to live. Amen.